Well, good morning. I'm Susie Everett, and I feel like we could just say covenants were covered in those songs this morning, but that may be because it's on my mind all the time, and so I'm seeing it everywhere. Well, we've really come to the climax of Deuteronomy in these chapters, and perhaps the climax of the whole Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. Moses is about to wrap up his farewell message, and the Israelites are finally going to enter that promised land they've anticipated for so very long. In Deuteronomy, the covenant made back at Mount Sinai is being renewed with the generation who's actually going into the land. There's a lot of great material in these two chapters, but it was covered very well in our lesson. So rather, because this section begins, these are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. We're going to talk covenants today. In their book, Gentry and Wellam write, one cannot fully understand scripture and correctly draw theological conclusions from it without grasping how all of the covenants, biblical covenants, unfold across time and find their purpose, end, and fulfillment in Christ. We do not assert that the covenants are the central theme of the scripture. Instead, we assert that the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta-narrative. The backbone of the narrative. It's the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, which is one story from Genesis to Revelation, is a covenant story. God has one plan for humanity with multiple covenants which define our relationship to him. And it might be easy for us to write off this subject because we know we aren't expected to live under the old covenants. Maybe you think they sound kind of dry and prehistoric. I've been guilty of that. But covenant is not something that's relevant only to the Jewish people thousands of years ago, far from it. While we might ask in our post-cross faith, what has that to do with me? We will learn that in fact, Jesus on the cross, that cross up there, Jesus on the cross was God keeping his side of the covenant. And while it's important to understand why they matter, it's more important even to understand the one behind them, the steadfastly loving, promise-keeping Lord who reveals himself in a progressive way throughout scripture. The word covenant is used 27 times in Deuteronomy, 81 times in the Pentateuch, and 279 times in the Old Testament, um, 31 times in the New Testament. So it's a pretty important concept. And as we go through all of those, just kidding, um, let's look for what we learn about God and man. Let's listen for common words and phrasing in covenant language. Some of those are on your sheet. In fact, as we come to them, we'll, we'll see them as we progress through here. What can we learn from that, those common phrases, and how it all works together? If you remember at the beginning of our study, Drew explained covenants as the framework for the plan to restore God's people to God's place, enjoying his presence and reflecting his rule. And we see that ever building through the, through the Bible. Well, there are a lot of definitions of covenant. Um, one is an elected relationship of obligation under oath or a solemn commitment to undertake an obligation. There are a lot of um, biblical definitions like a binding commitment, obliging them to deal faithfully with one another, or a conditional promise that would involve those blesses and curses, or two or more parties bound together. Uh, my favorite came from the ESV study Bible, which is how God himself describes his relationship with his people and how he reveals himself. 
that's through covenant. There are a lot of not so interesting synonyms too, by the way. Accord, alliance, treaty, pact, contract, agreement, and they go on and on, and that might be why we're sometimes guilty of, of feeling this is not a, um, a heart issue, but a more technical issue, but it, it truly is about our relationship with God. Um, a quote from the Gentry book, at the heart of covenant then is a relationship between parties, which is characterized by faithfulness and loyalty and love. It seems to be the nature of both God and man to have expectations of one another in our relationships, to make and keep promises. And marriage is an obvious example. We even call it a covenant. There's usually a ceremony and a signed document. Um, but really this is true of our home, work, school, church, and our friendships and our neighborhoods, driving down the road or shopping at the store. We have expectations of one another. And we are, are hurt and offended when other people don't keep up their end of them. Sometimes we find legal ramifications for that as well. But the more I look around, the more I've noticed all these assumptions that influence our relationships. Sometimes they're clearly stated, sometimes they're implied. And they're usually voluntary because both sides have something to gain. But covenants with God are a little different. Um, he's the sovereign, he initiates, and he specifies the obligations on both sides. A little history. Legal treaties between kings, which were often called suzerains, and subjects, or vassals, existed during the time of the biblical patriarchs for the purpose of establishing continuing relationships. And at the beginning of your curriculum, there was a, a chart that showed that a bit. This, uh, the parallels between those kind of treaties and the one we see in the whole book of Deuteronomy. The suzerain would state as victor and lord over the vassals whom he had spared in battle, that they would receive protection and land in return for loyalty and service. And that does sound a bit like the Israelites, doesn't it? They were spared, they were receiving protection and land. In return, he expected their service and loyalty. It also um, served an administrative function by informing the vassals how the king would govern them and what they were to do in obedient response to him. Well, let's get started. The covenant of creation or works, or life. It has been called all of those. Genesis 1.27. So man, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates the heavens and the earth, every living thing on it, and then Adam, giving him both a vertical relationship with himself and a horizontal relationship with creation. God is initiating a covenant, though the word is not actually used here. It is commonly acknowledged as the first biblical covenant, and it is referred to that later in the Bible. In the Gentry Wellam book, they write, as servant king and son of God, mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of a covenant relationship with God on the one hand and the earth on the other. When Adam and Eve betrayed God, their rebellion violated the love, loyalty, obedience, and trust at the heart of that covenant. They were most blessed, and then they disobeyed, and they were most cursed. We may think that's harsh, but sin is an attack on God's sovereignty, his trustworthiness, on his very holiness, and the resulting curses included for them and for us guilt and death. So we come to Noah. There's a redo, so to speak. 
Um, and this one is called a universal covenant because uh, it includes all living things, including animals, which might be why there are no conditions of obedience expected with this one. In Genesis 6, we affirm, we see the creation covenant affirmed. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So Noah is a new Adam, and he's gonna be given the same blessing and commission that Adam was given. In Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, upon all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Sounds like dominion. Then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he goes into the rainbow being the sign of that covenant. Um, that word covenant is used many times in that section of scripture, by the way. But we hear the word fruitful, multiply, the idea of dominion, all of that is repeated with Noah, as it was with Adam. Um, Noah will sin later, and Gentry writes that that's instructive because it shows that being given a fresh start and a clean slate is not a sufficient remedy for the human plight. We know that in our own lives, don't we? <clears throat> Abraham, the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. And it's considered grace here because although we have a lot of obedience and we've seen that here in Deuteronomy as well, with Abraham specifically, God promises what's going to happen. He doesn't give him conditions. He initiates a covenant with Abram, known then as Abram, in Genesis 12 and 15 and then affirms that in Genesis 17. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a promise. He then demonstrates through a vision to Abram that the Lord himself will ensure the covenant is completed, despite the failure of man. We can't emphasize that enough. Thus the covenant of grace rather than works. This covenant was not dependent on Abraham's imperfect faith and obedience. And in Genesis 15, God has Abram cut a ram, a goat, and a heifer in half. As it's growing dark and Abram falls into a deep sleep, the Lord tells him that his offspring will be slaves in another land for 400 years, but they will be brought out and back to the land. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So the smoke and the fire represent God. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So in some of these diplomatic treaties between great kings and client kings, 
in which the more powerful king would agree to protect the lesser kings in exchange for control over their international dealings. Believe it or not, the subject king would walk through a severed animal. Um, hard to really imagine that, isn't it? But what it meant was, if I don't keep my end of this deal, this is what I expect to have happen to me. Ray Vanderlyn wrote, when God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would ever have considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. But when God made covenant with Adam, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son Jesus because he knew that humans would fail. He knew it. In Genesis 17, he affirms the covenant. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, th your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. At this time, God commands the physical circumcision also as a sign of this covenant. But we see in Deuteronomy, um, with the mention of the circumcised heart, that that is really a heart issue, a faith issue, even more than a physical one. So Abraham and his family are a new Adam, through them, one day sin and death will be resolved, but it's going to take a while. We see here a word pattern that will become a regular part of covenant language. I will be your God and you will be my people, which granted is not worded exactly like that here, but it's very similar. And in our lesson this week, uh, 2913, it said that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God. And back in Deuteronomy 26, 17, you might recall, you have declared today that the Lord is your God. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. In Exodus 6, 7, he said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And we see that throughout the covenant language. I will be their God is the fundamental, fundamental obligation on God's side. While they shall be my people is the fundamental obligation on the human side, on our side. <clears throat> so in Genesis 18, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So keeping the way of the Lord, um, earlier it said walk before me, those both indicate that Abraham is going to be the representative of God, his family is going to bless the nations through their example of what a right relationship to God looks like, and by bringing justice and righteousness to the world. Abraham is his representative and his ambassador. And um, one more note on, on the covenant with Abraham that we're seeing the blessings expanding um, 
the curses will be expanding as well, though, as we move on. Okay, Sinai. Mount Sinai, this is the Mosaic Covenant, also known as the Old Covenant. Israel, in this case, becomes the new Adam, not Moses. This is with all of Israel. They're the new Adam, and they're the last Adam. There won't be any more new starts. But through Israel, God will restore his broken creation. The Mosaic Covenant, which is really the one we've been studying all year in Deuteronomy, administers the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Israel. It's not really new. It's, it's much the same as the Abrahamic Covenant, but it's now been extended beyond one person and his family. In Exodus 6-2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So this is before their exodus out of Egypt. And then after, in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all of the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 29, the Lord says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. We see here a phrase used frequently, not only by Moses and others in prayer, but by the Lord himself, steadfast love. That is how it's uh, translated in the ESV. It's translated actually 169 different ways, this word hesed. Um, so depending on which translation of the Bible you have, you might see it as steadfast love, you might see it as um, loving kindness, covenant love, loyalty, unfailing love, faithfulness, kindness, or mercy. And apparently there are a lot of other words you might see, but those are the most common. Um, they, steadfast love, that phrase wasn't used in the chapters we read this week, but back in Deuteronomy 7, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So that steadfast love is linked with covenant all through the Bible. In Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In Micah 7.20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You can count on this God. Um, he's not like the tooth fairy. Sadly, in my house last week, these words were actually said by a forlorn nine-year-old, but she's never failed me before. Um, 
So God's not like me, and he's not like the tooth fairy. He's faithful, he's kind, he's merciful, and he's unfailing. Be listening for those words when we come to more covenantal scriptures because they, they keep coming up. Another aspects of covenants that we really have seen since the creation, if you consider the animals that died to provide those skins covering Adam and Eve, is blood. Remember, too, the covenant ceremony in Abraham's vision where the animals were sawed in half. In Exodus 24, to confirm the covenant in a ceremony, Moses builds an altar and offerings are sacrificed. Then after throwing blood against the altar, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Not only is the necessity of blood for cleansing of sin demonstrated here, but as Dawn so beautifully taught us some weeks ago, there is life in the blood. Nowhere is this clearer than when God himself becomes the sacrifice. So now we get to David and the Messianic covenant, or the Davidic covenant. The people living in the promised land eventually want a king, just as predicted in Deuteronomy 17, you might remember. And Saul is the first king chosen by God, but when he disobeys God, um, David is anointed. And later the prophet Nathan will speak these words to King David in 2 Samuel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, a place, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We're um, hearing that word forever a lot, right? <clears throat> I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, Psalm 89. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. David was promised that his offspring would hold an eternal kingdom and throne. So we're getting ever closer to the promised people, place, presence, the temple in this case, and king. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy 17, though? God knew they would want a king to be like the nations around them, although he knew it to be inadvisable. They would be allowed to have a king of his choosing. However, that king was required to study the law and obey it, and not permitted to acquire horses and wives and wealth. Well, guess what David's son Solomon does? Despite his tremendous wisdom, we learn in 1 Kings that Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. In 1 Kings 10, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And in 1 Kings 11, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So we have yet another human failure. 
and that eventually leads to a split of the kingdom. But thank goodness, thank God, we now come to the new covenant, the fulfillment of all his promises, the coming of the Messiah, the pouring out of the Spirit, and full forgiveness of sin, and someday a new creation. What grace. We're still in the Old Testament, though. Several prophets write about this new covenant, and we had Jeremiah 31 in our lesson, that he will make a new covenant and write the law on our hearts. In Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And how does he give us a new heart? Well, in our lesson, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that new heart is needed and God has a, a fix coming. He's promised here that it will happen. Remember in Deuteronomy 29.4, while they've seen and heard and even experienced the Lord and what he's like, they don't yet have a heart to understand. But he promises to give them that necessary help in the future. And meanwhile, they can please him by believing and persisting in obedience. One day they'll be enabled to obey even more with a new heart. God is fulfilling more than one promise at the same time when he sends Jesus. He opens the door for the Holy Spirit to come and renew our hearts, and Jesus himself is that it promised eternal offspring of David. In Jeremiah 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. That righteous branch is David's descendant, Jesus, a better, a better and the very last Adam. He alone could keep the covenant perfectly, and he alone could be the unblemished sacrificial lamb for our sins. He takes the curse and earns the blessings of the covenant all for us. Truly, all God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Which is why he was able to say in Luke 22, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When he says, it is done, this is what he's talking about. He did that thing that we most needed that we could not do for ourselves. And on the cross, Jesus brings the planned redemption to a climax by becoming the ultimate sacrifice in order that the covenant is fulfilled. And then the resurrection. The Gentry book says, God has planned a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Unlike the first creation where, he made the peop- where first he made the place and afterwards the people to live there. In the new creation, he is first making the people, us, and afterwards the place where they will live. The new creation begins in the midst of the old. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was the first man in the new creation. And anyone who is joined to Jesus Christ by faith is new creation. 
We see an emphasis on life here that brings us to the end of Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Matthew Henry said, what could be said more moving and more likely to make deep and lasting impressions? The manner of his treating with them is so rational, so prudent, so affectionate, and so in every way so apt to gain the point that it abundantly shows him to be in earnest and leaves them inexcusable in their disobedience. God evidently wasn't looking for perfect obedience, just persevering and putting him above all else. And in that, even, we see that they will again fail. But they need him to circumcise their hearts, leading to life. And there's a promise there in Deuteronomy that someday he will, that new covenant. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart that you may live. It struck me when we were studying John a couple of years ago, how often life came up, how often Jesus himself referred to the life in, to be found in him, and it's even in our lesson this week. But um, I pulled a couple more of those. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. That reminds me of those rebellious people in this this lesson. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the resurrection and the life. So for us, choosing life means choosing Christ. Instead of seeing a covenant as prehistoric or boring, what if we thought of it more like a marriage proposal, the most important of our lives that will bring eternal happiness, life, and love, because that's what it is. He longs for us to be his people. Remember Deuteronomy 5.29? Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them. Hosea, an allegorical book about God's continuing faithfulness in spite of Israel's infidelity, says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will make for them a covenant on that day. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Just as God was Israel, sorry, God was husband to Israel, Christ is husband to the church, and that is borne out several places in scripture. Um, Particularly this week, we had Revelation 3 in our lesson. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. If you've I love Jane Austen, and since I quoted Matthew Henry, that should be no surprise. <laughs> um, and in the last few weeks, I've watched two different Pride and Prejudice movies. And uh, the thing that struck me, of course, because I was going to be teaching on this, was those proposals that Elizabeth gets. And I'm sorry if you, if you haven't read those, but um, she gets one that's rather humorous. She gets another one in which she's so angry at the man that she turns him down immediately. But when that same man later proposes, and she knows who he is, and she knows his character, and she knows his trustworthiness, she says yes. If you have never said yes, if you've never said I do to the lover of your soul, choose life. 
He is that faithful, perfectly faithful one who loves you so much. Mark Buchanan said, the heart of the Bible's message, muted in the Old Testament, perhaps, Old Covenant, but shouted aloud in page after page of the New, is the improbable, astonishing, breathtaking good news that I am the one Jesus loves. You are the one Jesus loves. Say yes to him. And say yes every day in those little decisions we have, right? To choose life or to choose otherwise. All right. Well, I'm going to pray. And then we'll end with a song about his faithfulness because all these promises that we studied mean nothing without the steadfast love of the promiser. Dear Lord God of covenant faithfulness and merciful kindness, help us respond to your word with trust, obedience, and lives that bear fruit. We thank you for the privilege of being your treasured people. We ask that we walk in your way by living lives of righteousness and justice such that those around us know you are our God. Help us to choose life every day by putting you above all else. We pray to you, Holy Spirit, that you would lift the veil from the eyes of our friends, including our Jewish friends, that they too might see you clearly, they might come to know you and love you. Um, we, we just long for that, Lord, as we know you long for it as well. In your son's beautiful and precious name we pray, amen. Dream.
dismissed to your groups.